It was like the bravest, most beautiful thing to be in a relationship with somebody who can hold my vulnerability and hold my hand into the future that I want to be. Like hold my hand into the whole human being that I'm trying to live as. And I worry that we don't do enough of that. Where being in a relationship of love and trust and vulnerability with somebody also means uh, being accountable to them. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. Hey, Say More family. I'm so happy that you're staying on this journey with me. Today, we're talking about a topic I reflect on a lot in my role as CEO of New Profit, leading with authenticity, alignment, and joy. You see, I'm saying and here because being at the helm of an organization means that you're going to have some ebbs and flows because leadership, (laughs) it's not a glamorous thing, y'all. Let's face it. As a leader, you are going to make mistakes. I make plenty of mistakes, have made them, will make more. And you've got to be ready to take responsibility when those mistakes occur and learn from them instead of igniting a shame spiral that takes you down and makes it impossible to do what I'd like to believe we're on this earth to do as humans, learn, adapt, and evolve. Our guest today, Dr. Carmen Rojas, inspires me tremendously when it comes to navigating the ebbs and flows of leadership. She is the CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation, a nonprofit that funds local leaders who are building a just economy and a fully realized democracy. Carmen and I talk about our experiences becoming increasingly open and authentic as leaders. But why does authenticity even matter? Carmen explains how reflecting on and owning up to her lessons learned actually allowed her to evolve as a leader. Now, this evolution helped her create a more joyful, loving, and high-impact organization. We also talk about what victory looks like in the fight for social justice. And Carmen says it how it is. She makes it plain and she reminds us that freedom is a constant struggle. And as leaders, we win when we learn to accept that the work is never complete. So welcome, welcome, Carmen. It is such a delight to have time with you. And I'm so excited to really dig into a conversation with you about your pathway, your story, and also coalitions and coalition building, Mm -hmm. you know, and why it's important, what can be hard about it, and what you've learned about how to do it well. You know, I know that you are doing so much and you are in a lot of demand. And so I suspect you had maybe three meetings before this conversation and probably have several more after. So I'd like to try to support folks in getting here mm-hmm. by just, you know, kind of noticing a moment. And one way I like to do that is through focusing on laughter. Uh-huh. And so a question I have for you, Carmen, is I'd love for you to reflect and share with us something that just cracked you up recently that just had uh, you laughing. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, first, Tulane, thanks so much for having me. This is a real treat. I feel like 
I have had the opportunity to um, like pollinate space with you. I think about both of us as pollinators in different ways from so long ago, Tulane, and I'm so grateful to be in the place that I'm at and witness a place that you're at and get to mm. do it together, you know, to like yes. sit on the tip of a flower with each other for this moment, <laughs> which is such a sweet thing. You know, I am just like a laughing person. I make myself laugh quite a bit. Yep. <laughs> I'm literally just coming off of a staff call where uh, Dan, our VP of finance and investment was sharing with staff. We had to go to the bank yesterday, which is like a weird thing. Like you walk into a bank and Dan is in like an early forties, young, young black man. Mm-hmm. And I walk in and we are the largest clients of this bank. And Margaret Casey Foundation has sh- swag. You're like, we have a t-shirt, a sweatpant, yeah. a, a gear. <laughs> and Dan uh-huh. loves Margaret Casey swag. And so we walk in and I love to chitty chat with people and Dan does not. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, ma'am, tell me where you're from. Okay, great. What did you have for lunch? Okay. And Dan was like, I need to get out of here. What are you doing? <laughs> we need to get these papers notarized. Ma'am, you have a job. What are you doing asking this woman about her lunch? I was like, tell me where you got this lipstick. Is this a deep red or is this a light red? This is a very summery color. How did you decide on this? And so we just had our staff call and Dan was like, don't go anywhere with Carmen. So I feel like I'm always making my own self laugh. I laugh a lot. We have a joyful workplace, which makes works even like so much sweeter so wonderful yeah, like a very yeah. real blessing yeah those are my jokes at myself too like yeah yeah absolutely i love i love everything about that and you know there's so much about what you said i want to pull a couple of themes out for the same more community we um spoke earlier in our season with carla monteroso who i know is someone who is mm-hmm. a, a dear friend mm-hmm. of yours as well Carla Monteroso is such an inspiration to both of us. She's the founder of Brava Leaders, where she coaches leaders of multiracial and multicultural institutions. If you haven't heard our Say More episode with her, check it out by following the link in the show notes. Or just scroll up in the podcast app you're on, and you'll land on our first episode with Carla. You know, she talked about how she used to, earlier in her career in life, right, focus on fixing the problem, right? She would go to where there was pain or dissonance and try to resolve the pain. Mm -hmm. And she talked about how she now goes after what's yummy Mm -hmm. and and making what is yummy more so, Mm -hmm. growing it, expanding it, right? Mm -hmm. And I loved that. And I feel like I'm hearing, you know, a similar stance differently worded from you, Carmen, right? Because there's something about going after what energizes us, Mm -hmm. which actually enables us to be even more effective in terms of impact. And it seems to be more generative. You Mm -hmm. talked about a joyful team, Mm -hmm. right? You talked about, I mean, there's nothing, you know, there are things worse, but there are few things worse than folks who are attempting to build a new world, who are depleted, overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. fearful, insecure, and Mm -hmm. exhausted. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that at our worst, we'll build a better world is a bit... It's so bananas. <laughs> it's bananas. It's it doesn't so make a bit of sense. It doesn't no. make a bit of but sense. But there's like you know? a lot of, I think that there's a huge, uh, Carla also talks about like 
a couple of things. One of the things that I think about quite a bit is like in a sector where we are so committed to a future where we all belong, where they're like all life is precious. Yes, yes. We default to like common enemy intimacy. We default, like Carla has like a set of things that I like, we'll just be honest, when I stepped into this role, yeah, I was afraid, you know, like I was a young person coming out, a younger person running an institution like this. Yes, yes. That wasn't supposed to be here. And right. I came in with a shield and Carla offers language, I think, about the difference between a shield and a hug, right? Like the difference like that. And it took me a little bit of time and some stumbles, but now feel clear that in order for me to be the kind of leader that I want to be, it has to be joyful. It has mm. to be like a light of love emanating from my heart. I have to be willing to forgive. I have to be willing to belong to myself. Mm. And I think that we're taught that as leaders, we belong to other people more than we belong to ourselves. Uh, and I uh, am clear that I can't belong to anybody if I don't belong to myself. You know, like <laughs> I can't, I can't be for anybody if I don't hold myself. So I think you're right. Like I, and you know, philanthropy is a tricky, I'm not, it's a tricky space mostly because we are resource rich, right? Like I don't want to make it seem like, and I do this quite a bit. Like we are not a frontline organization. We are not the front lines of movement building. We're not the front lines of, we are right. at our best bureaucrats. And when we <laughs> do the best of our work, we move the most money as quickly as possible to the leaders of the front lines of the fights that are fighting for the future that we want to yes. be real in this country. And uh, don't overstate that and try to do it with as much joy as possible. Yes. Yeah. That I just love so much of what you're saying, and it's making me realize, Carmen, that it's worth us, you know, exploring this a bit more because yeah. there are stories that we are told in the Western world about leadership. I would also add that there are particular stories that we're told as black and brown women about mm -hmm. leadership. I am a woman, black race identity in this body who was raised working class and comes from people mm -hmm. who were working, you know, who worked and, you know, started small businesses and in some cases, you know, worked on land and, you know, you know, yielded the food that they ate for themselves mm -hmm. and their families. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about by all measure, you know, race, economics, gender, geography. I, like you, you know, I'm not, quote, supposed to be here. Right. And so when that is your truth, the training you get about your trajectory can be intense. So, mm -hmm. for example, Carmen, like I, you know was often through my academics and my music. So I, I did well academically as a young person and I played the cello since from a very young age, mm -hmm. right? And so those two things put me in spaces that my economic story would not have, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there was something that would happen when folks who loved me very much and wished me well wanted me to be sort of shored up, to mm -hmm. be safe in those places. Mm -hmm. And it was a message around, you have to work twice as hard mm -hmm. to get half as far. You know, mm -hmm. you need to present yourself as beyond reproach, you know, mm -hmm. stories of presenting perfection and infallibility mm -hmm. uh, as a measure of protection, mm -hmm. right? And it took me a while to recognize that that strategy 
which in some spaces made sense and was given with love, actually had a shadow side, mm-hmm. right? And the shadow side was rigidity, mm-hmm. uh, not bringing my full self to the table, et cetera. And so I had to go through my own journey mm-hmm. around that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if any of that resonates with you, oh. Carmen. Did you have your own version of that? And what did it take for you to go from, you know, from there to here? Um, my version of that, well, first, thank you. I love learning new things about people I care about, Tulane. I didn't know you were a cellist. (laughs) And yeah, thank you for sharing that. The stories that I told myself about leadership were a couple of fold. That leadership was about the brain and not about the heart. Mm. That it, it was like about rational thought and explanation and not about feelings. Uh, and how people felt, mm-hmm. uh, that I could experience abundant joy and share that publicly without sharing fear or sadness, uh, or shame. And that, like, I didn't realize how connected those two were that in order yeah. for me to like reach what I knew have always known are the peaks of joy and happiness in my life, I would need to surrender to the sadness and the loss and the regret uh, and rage that those two things live and anchor in each other. Mm. That I always, I want to talk about when I started this job, like I had a refrain because I came from running an organization that took money in from foundations and donors. I had a refrain that like, I don't understand why this is so hard with a chip mm. on my shoulder. Yes. And yes. I far underestimated what it takes to build an organization and thought I could do it better than everybody else, as opposed to like trying to build a depth of relationship with my peers in order to move the most money that we yes. were not enough. It's not about me. It's not about us. Yes. I was raised in a context where legacy was the most important thing. And have now surrendered into a very real and peaceful uh, place, which is like, when I die, I die. And I will have done the most that I have, that I can do and won't try to hold on, you mm. know? Yeah. And yeah. so I, I, yeah, I similarly have done that. And I love just like, Carla has also gifted. This is going to be about, this is going to be a Carla celebration festival. <laughs> it is, it is. This language of shadow side, right? Like that you can have amazing intent. You can have an amazing plan. And if you don't spend some time thinking about the shadow side of this thing that you are so wed to, because mm. everything has a shadow side, yeah, everything, everything, the most beautiful things. And if you don't have your eyes open and clear to that, it will come it will come and get you yes it (laughs) It will will snatch you up and remind you that's right Uh, and to need to name the shadow side i think explicitly so like one of the things i was not clear about the kind of leader i was when i started this job and i think my political People inferred from my political positions that I was like a flat organization person. Mm-hmm. I ran a cooperative. We all had the same decision-making rights. Right. That was an inference based on my politics, which was just never true. I Workers Lab, it was not true. It was never true in any position of leadership. Yes. But somehow it was inferred here and my lack of clarity and setting a boundary 
allow that inference to be tested. And the shadow side of not being clear mm. created many opportunities that could have been detrimental to my own leadership, to this organization that I run. And I took a beat and a breath and I realized that clarity is kindness. Yes. Uh, yes. That I need to name that uh, this is a hierarchical, this is a progressive hierarchical organization. And I was hired to lead this organization. Mm. And I am interested in supporting a team of excellent and amazing and brilliant people, which is who works at Marguerite Casey Foundation to lead their bodies of work. But it's my job to protect this institutions because I believe institutions matter. Yes. yes. And I don't think I was clear about that when I came into this role. And, you know, three years in, I feel very clear about <laughs> very my job clear is. about it. So clear. Yeah, that's it resonates so much. One of the, the gifts of being part of the Say More community is I get to be inspired and learn. I mean, I am sort of, you know, I'm taking notes that you can't see over here <laughs> because there's a whole set of learnings I'm doing in my own experience. And I hope that's also true for our listeners. So you talked about starting one way. You're now operating with more clarity, right? Progressive hierarchical organization made up of incredible, brilliant, gifted, talented, and joyful people. Mm -hmm. Usually when people talk about change and transition, there's all this literature and so much narrative around how fraught and awful and painful and difficult it is to shift your stance as a leader. Mm -hmm. You've done it and you have a joyful team. So talk a little bit about how did you make that change? From, you know, less clear, fuzzy around the edges mm. to unapologetic clarity that's rooted in love, right? And joy. Mm -hmm. How did you make that shift? Because a lot of people think, well, once you make a misstep as a leader, that's it. You're doomed. Oh. But clearly that's not your story. Mm -mm. Yeah. I actually just uh, had an experience maybe like six months ago where with a group of funders and organizations shared, like I had made a mistake and I had a donor Essentially, on the dais, say, well, if you would have made these mistakes running my organization, I would have fired you. Huh. And I was like, oh, interesting. That's that's one way. That's a helpful piece of information. Mm -hmm. And knock on wood that I don't work for you. <laughs> um, and right? that I work instead for a board of people who figured out how to hold me accountable who asked me the hard question. Yes, yes. I work for a group of people and I'm talking both in terms of like my board and our leadership team at the foundation and the staff of the foundation and the grantees of the foundation uh, who, you know, as I was making this pivot, Rashad Robinson asked me this question that I always sticks with me, which is, Tell us all of the unforced errors you made. Wow. In stepping into this role. For my listeners who may not know, Rashad Robinson is the president of the civil rights organization Color of Change and a board member of the Marguerite Casey Foundation. Let me just take a moment to repeat what he asked of Carmen. He said, tell us all of the unforced errors you made. I think that that's a powerful way to reframe our narrative around making mistakes. It was not a planned conversation, but it was something that in the moment I felt safe to do with the board. I did it with the board and gave them a full line of sight. 
And it was a gift because we all make mistakes because I'm a human being. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And it created a room and a pathway for us to like bear witness to change and not take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. I think I took on, it was a pandemic too, Lane. And I think we look back at 2020 now as just another year. Yes. And I keep reminding myself it was a year in which the world broke open. That's right. And paused. That's right. It was a year in which George Floyd was murdered and we were talking about abolition in the New York Times. Right. It was a year in which working people in this country were thought of as essential. It was like a year, it was like a breaking. Mm. And so I came to like forgive myself yeah. and like hold myself and have very juicy conversations with our staff, with uh, the leadership team at the foundation with the board of the foundation about the future that I believed was possible. I like stepped in actually most fully into it. Therapy. Yeah. I just like have to say it out there. Like yep. therapy Amen. changed my whole orientation, mm. coaching, organizational leadership coaching. Okay. So Carla has been supporting me and my leadership for a good amount of time. And came in early on and gave me good, hard feedback. Mm. Like the kind of feedback that only a sister can give you. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then was like, I'm going to hold your hand and let's hold hands. And like, let's slow down and figure out how we will move forward. And there was a community of amazing women. Carla being one of them, Sayu Bajwani being mm. another one, yep. Esperanza, Turvalon being a third, Rose Khan. There were like just these four women mm. who I turned to when I was pivoting. It's so funny. It's a year. I felt a year inside of my body come together a year ago this week. Wow. And I sent all four of them a voice memo about forgiveness, like forgiving myself about for just about general forgiveness and moving forward like mm -hmm. what does a ritual of moving forward look like and i look back on this last year tulane and it has been remarkable yeah. like this the spaciousness in my life feels so real i feel like i'm afraid of the right things yeah you know like i'm a i'm afraid I'm afraid of what's happening in our institutions and I'm doubling down on naming the need to have durable institutions for the country that we want. Yes. And yeah, it's, I feel like it was, there's a whole host of things that made this real possible for me. And it started from having honest conversations that were vulnerable and scary mm -hmm. with the people who I and mentor stewards of this institution and yes. who are stewards who walk alongside me in this life. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I hear also, Carmen, a clarity about whose perspective matters to you, right? Mm -hmm. And a letting go of trying to win over those who are unwinnable without you making unacceptable 
sacrifices uh-huh. and compromises to your beliefs, right? So that person who on this main stage, you know, tried to do a gotcha moment, you know. Totally. Uh, you know, I, you would have been fired. I love your response. Oh, well, you know, hey, God willing, I will never work for you. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like that is, that's right. And and otherwise, I'm not actually particularly concerned that's right. with what you would choose to do, right? And, and I say that because there are folks who just don't buy it. What do I mean by that? I mean, there are people who, despite all the abundant evidence to the contrary, still think that if you are running an effective, high-impact institution, organization, or business, that you are not leading with empathy, joy, love, compassion. Mm-hmm. There are still those who believe that love is a, a soft thing, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a fierce and powerful, mm-hmm. durable thing. Carmen gets it. She's well aware of the fact that leading with compassion and love is so important in this work. It's actually a big part of the work of the Marguerite Casey Foundation. They invest in local social justice organizations that prioritize the needs of excluded and underrepresented people, families, and communities. So I wonder, Carmen, like, what is it that you've done and that you push your team to do to center community in the ways that you clearly have? Like, because that doesn't automatically happen. And the truth is that there is a magnetic pull of hierarchy, you Mm -hmm. know, in our society where the closer you are to capital Mm -hmm. and the further you are from, you know, economic struggle, you know, Carla, and shout out to Carla, she talks about this, like how it is for those of us who through our identity, our economic story, you know, at one point in our lives, we're part of a reality. Mm -hmm. And then in pretty short order, we get removed from that Mm -hmm. and have our own relationship to privilege Mm -hmm. and distance from what we knew when we were perhaps growing up. Mm -hmm. And so how do you hold yourself and your team accountable to truly centering and honoring what you're hearing from local community leaders and and just folks who are living in the systems that we want to change? Mm-hmm. A couple of ways to, I love this question. I'm honest about where I sit in terms of my class privilege today. Mm-hmm. I'm just like mm-hmm. unabashedly, I think it's super important that I name that I have a set of uh, I have access to an economic privilege that is far beyond anything I ever imagined, anything that my parents ever could have imagined, that anybody in my yeah. family ever could have imagined. I bought a house by myself, like mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. that like were untenable for people where I grew up that look like me. I think a lot of us latch on to like that kid's story and aren't honest about our today's story. And that's to the detriment. I don't ever want to be the proximate expert because it's not true. Right, right. I have access and a privilege that I think it's important to name so that I don't gaslight the majority of us. Yes, yes. Secondly, like I see us as stewards of this institution. Like, so a number of people will be like, oh, we're getting a grant from Carmen. I was like, oh, Carmen doesn't give out grants. Marjorie Casey Foundation gives out grants. Like, let's, let's be clear because I think naming that feels super, super important. That's right. uh, and like naming, talking about money feels really important and being clear. So you've heard me say this, like if, well, two things, mm-hmm. if we have a closed grant making process, if somebody reaches out to us and they're not a match, we'll tell them we won't take the call and we'll just say, this is why we're not a match. Yes. Thank you so much. If we think that there's a possibility of a match, we'll pay you for your time. So like we pay organizations 
$2,500 for an hour of time to learn more about their work. Yes. And it helps us be more judicious yes. about being the steward of resource because the internet exists, right? Like you can find out you have relationships, like you build relationships and you learn about people, but don't waste people's time. Yes. Uh, and so I take that super, super seriously. I think as a leadership team, we all know enough about each other's jobs. Mm-hmm. We all are stewards mm-hmm. of this organization. And I just say, lastly, you know, I had a, an unprecedented gift of starting when I started. I had seven board members step down and I made a really concrete choice of inviting people to join the board who actually ran organizations who ran movement organizations. And on the other side, having people like Stacey Abrams and Julian Castro, who come from government, who believe in a government that can work for us, be on this board, allows me to have a full line of sight. And that uh, I wasn't seeking to have my friends on the board. I was seeking to have the most impactful stewards of the mission of this organization on on the board, and it's really worked out. That combo is so important. On one hand, having a team that's worked at the grassroots level is guided by community and constituent insight. And on the other hand, support from government leaders who believe in your mission and have access to formal systems of power. It allows for a dream coalition that can really move mountains. But Carmen knows that's not all it takes to create the change in communities. We have to be ready to embrace the struggle. One of the things when I started this job, we would have, we have a book club and we had this amazing conversation with Angela Davis. Mm. I love books. I just, I'm like, I love getting lost in a book. And one of her books that has really changed my life is Freedom as a Constant Struggle. You can find Angela Davis's book, as well as many other great recommendations from Carmen in our show notes. Carmen had the amazing opportunity to talk with Angela after reading her book. And I said that, and then I was like, what does victory look like? And she was like, Carmen, freedom is a constant struggle. Like, you win something, you have to fight to keep it, and then you have to win it again, and then you have to win it again. Like, it's a it's a constant struggle. And the victory is in like perfecting the work to make the struggle less, to make it less contestable, to make more people believe, for me at least, that our government should be working for them, mm. that they should live in decent housing and not in tents, that they should have access to quality K through college education without going into debt, that they should be able to get sick and see a doctor mm-hmm. without having to mortgage their home. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Mm-hmm. That is the constant struggle for me. And that has been such like a liberating refrain yes. that I keep coming back to. I think it's beautiful. And I hear it and I'm also liberated. There are some who hear it and feel exhausted and depleted. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. do. It's a, it's a generalization, but I'm going to go ahead and make it. Forgive me, y'all. I do find that the sort of willingness to engage in the marathonness of this can mm-hmm. sometimes be harder for some of my younger colleagues and friends. Mm. This idea that like we want it now enough already uh, comes up. And so I hear that I'm also like you liberated and freed to accept 
the ongoing nature, the devotion required to this. I have, you know, folks in my family, folks in my organization, folks in my network and community who are like, well, that's the problem. You know, y'all are too comfortable with this being this ongoing thing. You need to ask for more, push more, be bolder and insist. And so I wonder, have you observed that dynamic? Mm -hmm. And what is your what would you say to a younger person who would say that our sort of willingness to accept the longness of this fight is part of the problem? Mm hmm. Yeah, I just think history is important. And I don't think that there is a contradiction between wanting it now and freedom being a constant struggle. It just means that like you have to fight to win and fight to win again. There is an opposition. And I think the blindness, we're living in such a strange moment where <laughs> I think that like this common enemy intimacy, I think as, you know, people, this is a, a big generalization, but like it's been my experience. The people most committed to social change are willing to confuse dissent for disagreement. And so we spend mm. a lot of time fighting amongst ourselves. Like, do you want it today or do you want it tomorrow? And if you want, if you want it on Wednesday and not on Thursday, then you're a bad person. Mm. You clearly don't understand. Like we are willing to drag our own selves down. Like we do our opposition's job for them every single day. Don't we? And I am more, I believe that there can be an urgency. I believe that there is an urgency. And I just think that like we can win something. And if we turn a blind eye to like after winning something, we can, uh, we can like go to sleep. Yeah. That's when we lose things. Like we want a different world. There are like the, this thing that you're describing in terms of polarization, at their extremes, it's a desire for a different world. One for life-affirming institutions, one is for life-denying institutions. People mm -hmm. who are highly invested in carcerality, prisons, police, people who believe that if you give somebody a house, you give somebody quality medical care, you care for, if we care for each other, then we can live a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think we sometimes turn the volume down on them and turn it up on our differences at our own peril. And speaking to Carmen about the constant struggle for liberation, I couldn't help but think of those who will keep up the fight in the future. My hope is that my contemporaries and I and my elders and I not only create a space of support for young people, but are actually in deep partnership with young people, guided by their insights, receptive to their pushbacks and criticisms. Better, stronger, more effective, bolder, because of these intergenerational relationships in service of liberation. I had to ask Carmen what her hopes are for the younger generation. You know, one of the things that happened for me in this period of time in this sort of transition that I described is that I just, I got off of all social media. I love this thing that you said, Tulane, which is like, when you, you know who, whose perception of you to care about, uh, essentially that's how it landed for me. Yeah. And I think social media distorts that. And there's like a whole belief that, that it's real, you know, mm -hmm. that like, that it's relational mm -hmm. and that, Relationships are not complex. And I pray that younger generations and older generations 
like live life more fully in proximity yeah. with each other. Yeah. This holding of each other's hands, rubbing of somebody's back, sitting and eating food with somebody, being being in actual relationship. Like I pray for more of that. I I like at my core fundamentally believe that that will be the salve for us. Mm. Uh, Wasn't Brene Brown say it's hard to hate people up close? <laughs> It's hard to hate people up close. I love that quote, and I believe it to be true. Now, you might have heard of Brene Brown, a renowned author and professor. Her work focuses on human connection, leadership, and the power of vulnerability. I mentioned this thing to you, Tulane, about like a year ago, sending this little voice memo to my my girls. And I thought when I was going to send this little voice memo, I was like feeling so proud of myself. I was like, look at you, Carmen Rojas. You're talking about a feeling. You're having a big heart most. You're doing a vulnerability with people that you care about. You're practicing. This is amazing. Uh-huh. And Esperanza, who is my sister, like I just, she is truly like my oldest, bestest friend. One of the invitations I made in this little recording was an invitation to hold me accountable. Like if you see me not being in these ways that I'm hoping to be in the world, let me know. Mm-hmm. And like, she called me five minutes after and she was like, look, I'm really proud of you. This is great. I'm here for you. I love your heart. This is amazing. And I want to tell you how you're not showing up in the ways that you want to show up. And I think that that's, it was like the bravest, most beautiful thing to be in a relationship with somebody who can hold my vulnerability and Hold my hand into the future that I want to be. Like, hold my hand into the whole human being that I'm trying to live as. And I worry that we don't do enough of that. Yeah. I like not even just as leaders, just like as human beings. That's right. That's right. To have the kind of authentic relationships where being in a relationship of love and trust and vulnerability with somebody also means being accountable to them. Yes, yes. It means sharing your scaries of them. It means like that it means all these other things. So I have a prayer for young people that they're able to like sit in the glory of that, Mm. that they are able to sit in the glory of authentic relationship with each other, with us in ways that catalyzes uh, the future that we want. Yes, yes. It's powerful because what I'm hearing in that story, right? is, you know, I believe that love, you know, in all its forms, it's it's when you are accepted and loved during and through your missteps and mistakes mm-hmm. and failures as much as your victories mm-hmm. and your gloriousness, mm-hmm. right? And so, mm-hmm. so much of what I see in organizations and in relationships and in families is people trying to pretend they didn't get something wrong, <laughs> you know? Like, mm-hmm. we spend a lot of energy trying to make it seem just so... Or find somebody else who's responsible besides ourselves. That's right. And that is because there isn't so many of us this fear that if we are, you know, held accountable, that accountable means that we will live in this sort of rigid, cold, untender, rough terrain with people. Mm -hmm. But the accountability that you're talking about and that you just shared in that story is tender. It's loving. Mm -hmm. It's actually gentle. It's kind. It's warm. It's generative. And Mm -hmm. you're not risking abandonment. By sharing your vulnerability. And that's the thing that I think is underneath so much of the behavior that creates distance between us and organizations. Oh, I absolutely agree. 
Absolutely. I really appreciate that. So, so at Say More, one of the things we do is we get questions from the community. And so I've got a couple questions for you, Carmen, that I'm going to bring to bear. Um, One is from Makia Moody, and she says she'd enjoy insights about how to reclaim co-opted language. For example, equity, affirmative action, woke, patriotism, et cetera, Mm. and the role, if any, of coalitions in doing that, in reclaiming co-opted language. Makia says the denigration of meaningful concepts is crazy making. (laughs) So like I think woke is one great example The idea that being woke is now inherently problematic When at its root it actually means something Quite expansive and adaptive Do you have thoughts about the roles of coalitions In reclaiming co-opted language Or do you have a perspective on if that is even a a worthy goal? Oh I absolutely You know it's so funny We call our scholars freedom scholars Mostly because you know Our opposition has co-opted what freedom looks like they said, they say freedom is individual liberty. It means I have control of me and I don't have anything to say with you. Mm. I'm not accountable or responsible to you. And I thought it was fundamental and really important that freedom is our word. That freedom means that we are in a relationship of mutual trust and admiration, that we are in a relationship in which we contend with our differences mm-hmm. and still love each other fiercely. Mm. So I, one, I, so I have a lot of affection for Makia. So I'm going to say that. Mm-hmm. If I didn't say that, I would be remiss. Yes. But I do think it is a worthy endeavor. I also worry that we fall into the trap of countering what people are saying. Like instead of woke is a great example, like where woke has gone from a Twitter term to the kind of like liberals felt policed by woke. Mm-hmm. So they were like, I don't know. I mean, like the place where we, I experienced it most was like around gender pronouns where people were like, I don't know. I can't say a gender pronoun. How am I supposed? I'm like, what are you talking about? This is absurd. And then the response would be like, this is so woke. Like it, like we, act, this is like the perfect example where we took the word down. And then our opposition legalized it. They Mm. did a function of white supremacy and took their concentration of political power and started to legislate around wokeness, right? Like that's what we're seeing in a number of states across this country. Yeah. And I think that like, it's important to like navigate the archaeology of that and see where we ourselves did ourselves a disservice. And now we're spending a whole lot of time being like, well, that's not woke. This is woke. Like, I'm not interested in that. (laughs) I am interested in like, I think patriotism is, I was just in a conversation yesterday with a bunch of amazing leaders talking about patriotism, talking about America as a concept. Mm -hmm. And in patriotism, half is like a majority people of color group. And it was like a struggle to be like, I am a patriot. And I'm like, yeah, I am a patriot. Yeah. I live in this country. I believe in us. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that patriotism needs to be tied to a military complex. I don't believe that patriotism needs to be tied to things. I think it's our job to create countervailing examples of what these words mean yes. and offer actually a different form of power as opposed to just surrendering them away or using explanation or perfect definition as a way to exclude people out of using these terms 
that end up, you know, uh, what is it? Like a term turns into an idea. Idea becomes a norm. A norm becomes common sense. Maurice Mitchell talks about like the making of common sense so beautifully. Yes. And I, uh, we are we are spending way too much time reacting to their common sense as opposed to investing in our own. Yeah, thank you so much, Carmen. Well, I, you know, I'm really grateful to you for who you are, for what you do, mm-hmm. for your support and your kindness towards me, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, I just, I genuinely love you and mm-hmm. I know that I'm always rooting for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you. Thank you for your time same. today. Same, same, <laughs> same, same. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.